Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, uh, if you could open it to Psalm 67. Psalm 67, that's where we will be today. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We love giving Bibles out. Just put your hand in the air and uh, one of the wonderful ushers will put a Bible in it. And when you get that Bible, just crack it open in half and go a little bit to your left and you'll find Psalm 67. Now, I don't know what it is, but we love to sing in our house. There's just always a song in our home. You could hear someone in their bedroom, in the hallway, in the bathroom, definitely in the shower, uh, maybe out in the garage or in the backyard. And they're singing. They're singing a song, sometimes individually, sometimes with somebody, sometimes on iTunes, sometimes with an instrument. But there just seems to be singing all the time. I love it. And one of the times I particularly like as a family is when we get together for family worship. It's something we're not always consistent in. We're trying to grow in. It kind of ebbs and flows depending on the season. But we get together just as a family around the kitchen table and sing, pray, and read. Just keep it really simple. Uh, and, and that's what we do. We read the word, we pray, and we sing. And sometimes we'll just grab an old hymnal, crack open a classic, and sing a hymn as a, as a family. Or a song that we just learned on Sunday here as we were worshiping. And we love that. I love hearing our, uh, our family sing. I can't read music. I don't know what those dots and lines mean. It's just, I make a joyful noise. There's a couple of people in our family who actually know what they're doing. But we just love to sing. I love it when we get together here and sing. I love when our church family, brothers and sisters in Christ, from all sorts of different backgrounds, coming together and worshiping the Lord together. I love it. I love it. And that's not surprising. This is what the church has been doing for a couple of millennia. Right from the very beginning, God has always been giving his people a song. It's almost like it's in the blood of believers. It's just right there. In fact, if we go to Ephesians 5, we'll realize that this is actually something of a mark that describes a believer who is full of the Holy Spirit. Someone who has been born again and has the Spirit of God in their life. There, there's this desire to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody from our heart to the Lord. It's just there. It's kind of hardwired into the redeemed. There's this rhythm and rhyme. There's something there that moves the people of God to sing. We were made and saved to sing. And that's what this psalm is really getting at. When we look at the Bible, when you crack it open like we just did, you'll find right in the middle a whole section of songs, 150 of them. And that's because believers, the people of God have always sung. And they've sung truth. This isn't just truth that we are to know and study and love, but then to sing and to sing from our hearts to the Lord. And as we see in Psalm 67, and as Julissa already read so well, that we see this as a prayer put to music. This is a melody and a petition all in one where God has really given the permission to his people to pray something incredible. And it's about the mission of God and the people of God, as we will see. So why don't we start? Psalm 67, verse 1. It starts out, May God be gracious to us and bless us. That's, a, that's the prayer. That's the petition. Now, we don't know the author of this particular psalm, but we know it was inspired by the Holy Spirit and given to the nation of Israel at this time. And what this request is kind of bringing to mind is an old promise. Actually, one of the greatest promises we find in the entire Bible that was way back near the beginning in Genesis 12. And it was a promise that God gave to a man named Abraham. And this is what it was. God said to Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's many things that God is saying here to Abraham, but two things that are clear, two incredible, unconditional, no strings attached promises that God is giving Abraham. One, 
that God would bless Abraham. And two, that God would bless the world through Abraham. Now, I find I get pretty confused today when people use the word bless and blessing and you're blessed by the Lord. You know, if someone could sneeze and they're like, oh, God bless you. Or they send you a message and they finish it off. God bless you. Or someone on TV asks for your money and then if you do send in money, you'll get blessed. You're just kind of, well, what does blessing mean? What what is all of these ways in which this word is being used? And that's why we need to go to the Bible. The Bible will give us a clear idea of what does it really mean to be blessed biblically. And it means this. To be blessed is to know or experience the fullness of God. To know or experience the fullness of God. To know God is to experience the greatest blessing, the greatest joy, the greatest sense of peace and satisfaction. To know God, to have God, to have all of God is to be blessed. And this is what God is promising to Abraham. I'm going to bless you. That is, I'm giving all of myself to you because you have responded in faith. And so to know God is to have all of God, to be blessed by God. We, we have his presence. We have his peace, his comfort, his patience, his long-suffering, his kindness, his love, his forgiveness, his discipline, his mercy, and the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We, we get all of God. There's nothing more that you would ever want than God himself. And so what we see is blessing is actually primarily spiritual because God is spirit. And if we get God, that is the blessing. And yet God also created all things, initially good, before sin corrupted everything. And so we know that there is this idea of physical blessing attached to it. But we just need to get it right in our heads and how the Bible describes it. You see, the physical blessing is promised and guaranteed from the spiritual blessing but just not right now. When Jesus returns and makes all things new in the new heavens and earth, that's when there will be a full expression, when everything gets renovated, of the physical blessings of God. But now we experience the full spiritual blessings of God being united to God through Jesus Christ. So the spiritual blessings are guaranteed to us right now, and the physical blessings are only given if they help us mature spiritually. So... If I have a sickness, I can ask God. In fact, the scripture says that I'm to ask God for healing. And God may give me healing if it will help me grow in my faith and mature in my walk with God. Or he may withhold healing and give the grace to persevere through that illness. Because he knows in his wisdom and love that that will actually help me grow in my faith and my walk with Christ. The goal on this side of his return is to mature in Christ's likeness, whatever it takes. And that's a sobering reality. But the blessing of God is known by the fullness of God that we have in coming to know God, we actually experience all of God. Now, how do we know God? The scripture is very clear. The way we come to know God is through his word. Here is where God has revealed himself in the Bible, the scriptures. God has shown himself and revealed himself in all that he is in his characteristics and his attributes. God has acted in history and has written down for us his great and marvelous works and his mighty deeds. And God has actually spoken. He said some words and gave some promises And they're all here in God's word. And so as we trust in God, in what he has written in his word, we come to know God and experience the fullness of God. First, by coming into a saving relationship with him. By trusting in all that God has said about his son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth to die for our sins so that we wouldn't have to and rise again three days later, who now lives an indestructible life life, reigning as king in heaven, so that anyone who trusts in him is forgiven and given eternal life. If we believe that as a first step, we enter into this relationship, and God gives us this new heart, and the Holy Spirit who comes now and lives 
in our new heart, the very spirit of God, the very presence of God, that we now as believers, as children of God who have now been adopted into his family can know the full blessing of God in being in saving relationship with him. This is a part of what God was saying to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. That is, I am revealing myself to you in my fullness so that you might have a personal relationship with me by faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so he says as well, Abraham, I'm not only going to bless you, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And the way I'm going to do that is in a couple of ways. One, the same way that you trusted in me, the world will trust in me. And through that faith, they're going to be saved. They're going to be blessed in having a relationship with me. But it gets more specific than that. Abraham, one of your great, 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 great grandsons is going to be named Joshua or Jesus. He's going to get born in Bethlehem. He's going to grow up in Nazareth. And he's going to be the object of the faith of the nations. When they trust in him, God incarnate, Emmanuel, when they trust in him, the whole world will come into a saving relationship with God through him if they believe. This, in a really, really compact capsule, is the promise that God gives Abraham. Abraham probably couldn't conceive of all of that in that moment as to what God was promising, but he knew it was big, and he held on to that promise. And this psalmist, Psalm 67, is highlighting this fact. That God, you, we know that you made a promise way, way back to Abraham. And this prayer in Psalm 67 is saying, God, would you do it today? Would you fulfill that promise? Would you fulfill that promise today that through us and the nation of Israel, the whole world would be blessed and come to know you and saving relationship with you because of our walk with you? God, would you do that? But that's only half the verse. The second half of the verse picks up another idea that's similar. It says this, God, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Now this idea that God's face shines upon us is almost exactly the same as God would you bless us. This idea is repeated all throughout scripture that God's face is like the sun in the sky that can bring its light and warmth upon his people, giving them light, knowing where to go, and warmth to keep them warm, light to provide food and provision. There's this idea of blessing in this. And it's actually, it also harkens back to and might remind you of another prayer that Aaron prayed, Aaron the high priest, that he would pray and pronounce over God's people. This is what God gave to Aaron as the high priest to pray. It was in Numbers 6, and it goes like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. Keep you means to protect, to guard. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now what would that be like? We were recently camping as a family, and by God's grace, the summer has had a really good string of sunny days. But there's been other times where we've gone camping, and it was the opposite. Or you may have been at a picnic, and it's just pouring. I mean, just pouring rain. You're soaked, you're wet, you're cold. And then all of a sudden, the clouds break. And there's this shaft of light that starts streaming down and begins to come your way and then just hits you. And the warmth of the sun just flows and pours over your body. It just seems like it's pouring into your soul. That's what it's like for God to smile on you. Or if you're a child who doesn't know where your parent is and you're calling out their name and you find them and they look at you and you look at your parent and the parent's eyes are on you and smile is on you and you come and you give that child a big hug in that moment that child knows it's going to be okay I am loved, I'm safe I'm secure I'm warm, I'm protected this is what it's like 
for God's people to experience the smile of God, the face of God shining upon them. We need this kind of picture of God's face because it's right. Because there's some wrong ideas about what God is like. This idea that God's this angry dad up in heaven just waiting for his kids to mess up and disappoint him and be all over them. No. That's not the picture at all that the Bible gives us of God. This is the God who it's his great pleasure to give you the kingdom and bring you into his family. He's the one who's the loudest singer in heaven when one sinner rejoices and he brings them into his family. He is the one who has the most joy in the universe over every one of his children that he saved. He sings over them in love. His smiling face is upon them 24-7. His good gaze is upon them for their good at all times. Yes, as children, you might know this as a parent, is that there's times when we disobey our father. And the scriptures talk about how we grieve the spirit and we can grieve God. But God in his kindness always grieves us back into repentance and get us back in line with believing the truth again. And so this is what it means for God's smiling face to be on his people. And this was a prayer that God gave Israel to pray in Psalm 67. God, would you do this in our day? Would you fulfill that promise to Abraham to bless us? Would you fulfill that prayer of Aaron to cause your face to shine upon us today? Why? Well, this is a dangerous prayer. God has actually put in the Bible a prayer that we are to ask for God's blessing. I mean, you could see this going wrong in a thousand different ways of being vain, all about yourself, or into materialism, or all sorts of things. Is that what God means here? No. As, as we go through this, we will see four reasons why God calls his people to pray that he would bless them and cause his face to shine upon them. And this is the first one. The first reason why we must pray in this way is so that the nations would sing his praise. So that the nations would sing his praise. This is all throughout this short song, verse 3, 4, and 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Now, when the Bible uses the word peoples, it's not talking about geopolitical boundary lines. Those change over time in history with wars and stuff like that. He's talking about people groups. Groups of people who share the same language and customs. And there's about 6,700 of them on the globe right now. Different languages, different people groups that God knows that God has actually created those languages. And it's his intent that every one of them would hear the gospel. And that people from every one of those people groups would know him and sing his praise. I remember it was the summer of 2003. We were on a plane over the Atlantic. I was heading to a mission trip. And I brought with me a book called Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. I think it was like one page in, there was this line that completely changed the way I understood missions or the act of going and telling people about the good news of Jesus who haven't heard. And that line was this. It said, worship exists because, sorry, missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions exists because worship doesn't. What he's saying there is that there's spots on the globe that aren't worshiping the one true and living God. And that's exactly where we need to go so that they might hear about the one true and living God. So that they might in hearing believe and in believing be saved. And in being saved they might sing and sing to his praise. So that in that tongue and in that language there might now be a voice that sings the praises of God. That's why we sing that hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. 
what that hymn is pointing to is that there are thousands and thousands of languages and tongues. Many have come and are already praising the one true and living God, but there are many languages and tongues that there's, it's mute. You cannot hear one voice praising the one true and living God yet. And so that's why we go. That's why we pray this prayer. God, would you, would you bless me? Would you fill me, oh God, with your presence that I might sing your gospel? And in singing your gospel, others might hear me singing that song. And they might hear and believe and be saved to sing as well. God, would you bless us so the nations will sing your praise. Well, that's not the only reason this song gives us that we would pray this prayer. Another one is that all the nations might know his saving power. That all the nations might know his saving power. We get this in verse 2. Why would we pray this? So that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. This is really getting at the reason why we sing. This is the fuel of our song. Why do we sing his praises? Because of his saving power. There's this way of salvation being spoken of in verse 2. God has a way of saving people, this way of salvation kind of reminds us of Psalm or Isaiah 35 where God speaks of this highway that he has, this highway of holiness. Holiness just, seems, just means to be utterly devoted to God. And so there's this highway that people are put on that are totally devoted to God, not because they're super righteous and check all the boxes and keep all the rules, but because they're really, really bad people and sinners who got forgiven and trusted in God and God saved them and put them on that highway. And then, as we keep reading the Bible, we realize that this highway actually isn't a strip of asphalt, but a person. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus himself says there's no other way, that he actually is the only way to God. Now, there's lots of different religions and systems in this world that tell us that they lead to God. But if that, if that way or religion doesn't lead you to Jesus in all the ways that Jesus says he is, then it is not going to lead you to God or salvation. It doesn't matter what they're claiming. God the Father himself says, this, Jesus, this is my son. Listen to him. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through him. If you do not honor the son, you do not honor the Father. If you don't have the son, you don't have the Father. There is an exclusivity. There is a narrowing effect. Jesus says, I am the only way. He says the door or the gate is narrow that leads to salvation because there's only one. And his name is Jesus. I was in India recently and I was speaking with a fellow who liked Jesus a lot. Uh, really, really liked him. And wanted to add him to his list of kind of, he'd probably fit into the top three of his pantheon of gods. His whole list of gods. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not salvation. Jesus says that we are to trust in him alone. Acts 4 verse 12 says that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We could spend a million lifetimes searching a million other pathways and we won't find any because God's already given it. And there's one and his name is Jesus. Now we can get this idea that Okay, well, I guess if I'm supposed to tell people about Jesus, I better get a plane ticket and get on a, on a flight and cross some oceans, land on some foreign continents. And that's when I'm really doing God's work and on mission. But the reality is, is that we just got to cross the street. God has worked things in such a way that even in our own day, in the whole Toronto, greater Toronto area, God has brought the nations to us. Yes, and I pray God is stirring up in our own hearts here. There are some who must go, and there are those who must stay. There are those who have not heard about Jesus both there and here. And so we must have a, both, 
a global perspective and a local perspective. But if we don't have the global perspective, we will get myoptic and and our prescription will get out of whack locally if we don't think globally of what God is doing and his whole global mission. But we need to understand that we are on mission now, right, right now. If you are part of God's people, if you are trusting in God, you're in the family and you're part of the family business. And the family business is spreading the name of Jesus Christ so that all might trust in him. And that might look like around your kitchen table and sharing the gospel with your unsaved children. That might mean practicing hospitality, inviting your neighbors over and hearing about their life and sharing what Jesus has done in your life. God is is doing a great and unique work in our day that we can really touch the nations and affect the nations on your street, in your apartment building, on your floor. We need this kind of providential, strategic perspective. It's, It's full of scripture. It's very biblically warranted that we would have this kind of a mindset. You might be wondering, why am I ever in Milton? Why am I in Mississauga? Why would I ever be brought to Brampton or Acton or wherever you're from currently, where you're living right now? It's because God wants you there to shine his light, to sing his song. And he's bringing your neighbors and your co-workers alongside you. That's why that person always sits beside you on the go train. That's why that person's always on the bus with you, in the lunchroom with you, in class with you. Because God wants them to hear the gospel. And we have been given one of the most unique opportunities in all of world history to be a part of that mission. That people might know the saving way of Jesus Christ. So we must pray, Psalm 67, God, would you bless us? Would you cause your face to shine upon us so that we might sing and the nations might sing? Because they come to know your saving power. But then also this in verse 4. Oh God, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Why? So that, the, that you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. This is the third reason that we would pray this. is So that the nations would see God as their shepherd. That he, they would see him as their shepherd. What's a shepherd? A shepherd is someone who leads and guides and feeds and protects a flock of sheep. And God's people, is, they're often called a flock of sheep and God as being the shepherd. And one of the two things that a really good shepherd does is what is described here in verse 4. They judge and guide. Now we can get this idea that judge is, is this really, you know, strict judge that is just waiting for God's people to mess up and bring condemnation. Or this judge that's just eager to go to the ends of the earth and wipe out all people. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is not the heart of God. The word here, the verb here to judge, there's several different words, and this one means to bring discerning governance. A really wise decision in a situation. What kind of situations? Typically really bad ones. God is the only judge that will come in to the poor and the weak and the needy and bring them help and providing provision. He's the one who comes in to the ones who can't defend themselves. They have no voice. They're powerless. And he comes in as an advocate and defends them and gives a voice and brings justice to injustice. To bring relief and protection from those being oppressed. That's the picture that's being given here of God being a judge. Someone who comes in and judges with equality, with equity, with fairness. You can't buy God off. He doesn't play favorites. He has no favoritism, no partiality. He is perfect in his decisions. And this is so relieving. This is so relieving because our whole world is full of sin and injustice. And even though it's kind of God to give us legal systems that bring about some level and form of justice at times, it's just not enough. Even when the judge says guilty and there's a sentence, when you talk to the people afterwards who are on the victim side of things, 
It's just not enough. There's still something wanting, something outstanding. And that's because only God is the one who can perfectly balance the books. It's only God who can come in to any situation and bring equitable justice and righteousness. That may, that may or may not happen even in our own lifetimes. But when we take, if you look at all of world history as this massive reel, I don't know if you've ever been to the movies, one of those old movie theaters, where you just see these massive reels, and they're pointing and they're projecting the movie up onto a screen. And if you were to take this massive roll of film of this movie, and somewhere around one-third of the way or two-thirds of the way, wherever you want to grab it, you just slice out this one little section, and this one little scene, this one little clip, and the whole reel is, signifies your life. And there's lots of different things happening in the background there. Maybe some pretty intense injustices. And you're kind of wondering, God, that doesn't make sense. God, honestly, it kind of seems like you're being unfair here. As though, as though you didn't protect me. As though you're not good. As though you can't keep your promises. And it can be very, very confusing as children of God in our life. But this is why it's so important as we read the entire Bible. It tells us to be able to put that little piece of our life back into the whole role of film. And when we see in the very end what God has done throughout all of world history, every injustice will be made right. Every act of oppression will be judged. Every sin will be held accountable. All the books get perfectly balanced because God knows everything, sees everything, and can bring perfect justice in every situation. And he can even minister now in our own hearts today as we ask for forgiveness for all the injustices that we've ever committed so that we might extend forgiveness to those who commit injustices to us while we are comforted by his ongoing presence and the fullness of God that is with us. We need the nations to see him as their good shepherd, not only as a judge, but also as a guide. You see that word guide? That's a really important word. It's often used in the way that a king would guide a nation or as a military leader would guide an army or as a father would guide a family. This word is this idea of guiding and being responsible, having leadership to really guide and protect and provide as they head in a certain direction and a destination and arriving safely. And of course, God is the only good guide. Being a husband and a dad, I know what it's like to fail lots of times in those roles. But God never fails. He's this perfect shepherd. And no nation would know the good guiding hand of God better than Israel. who was They were enslaved in Egypt, remember, and God saved them and brought them up out of that land and guided them 40 years in the wilderness and bringing them safely into the promised land. So much so that David himself would be able to write in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. God guides his people collectively as a family, but also personally and individually. Have you ever wondered, does God know me? Does he, does he even care? Is he even aware of what's going on in my life? Yes, yes he does. In fact, he actually knows your situation better than you. He can actually discern your emotions even better than you. And he's the only one who can guide you. We and all nations have no other shepherd like this. This is why Psalm 67 says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Why? Because there's no other judge, no other guide, no other shepherd like this shepherd. Every other kind of false shepherd will lead to desert sands and parched lands and broken cisterns that will not satisfy. This prayer is saying, God, there is no other shepherd. Let the nations sing by knowing you as their shepherd. If they know you as the shepherd, oh, there will be a song in their heart. They will finally come to know what it means to have a God who is just and fair. What it is to have a good, guiding, protecting, providing father and guide. A perfect shepherd.
This is why God's people are called to pray this kind of a prayer. That God would bless them and cause his face to shine upon them so that the nations would know the Lord like this. His saving power and his perfect shepherding hand. And as we begin to see in verse 6, this started to happen. It says in verse 6, the earth has yielded its increase. It was starting to come in. This is, this is an idea from agriculture, from farming. It's like the world is this barren field. And suddenly, as God's people, as Israel began to sing the gospel song, like Psalm 67, sharing the promises of God, and the nations begin to believe in the God of Israel, they start to bear fruit. They're like plants popping up in the savanna and bearing fruit. There's an increase in yield. And we see this already in the Old Testament. God was beginning to bring the nations, the, all these other peoples, to put in faith in God. You see this with Moses, with Moses' father-in-law Jethro. Jethro was a Midianite priest. He was a pagan priest. But as he heard Moses' recount of the way in which God saved Israel out of Egypt, Jethro was like, there is no God like this. And he worshipped and blessed Yahweh, the Lord. And he attached himself by faith to God. We see this during the time of King David. That during, during the lifetime of David, you would have the enemies of God, the Hittites and the Canaanites. You would have people from those backgrounds actually joining themselves to David. Actually joining themselves to the God of David, Yahweh, in faith and being saved. You have David's own son, Solomon who had the queen of Sheba come because she had heard of the wisdom of God. And when she saw Solomon and all his wisdom, she worshipped the Lord, the one true and living God. The earth was beginning to yield its increase. Gentiles were beginning to trust in the Lord, the one true and living God. But then something went wrong. Something happened where Israel... Stop singing this song. For the most part, the entire nation began to embrace the songs of other nations and other gods. They were no longer interested in God's light shining on them and through them. Instead, they embraced the darkness of their neighbors and all of their false worship and religions. And instead of bringing them to the Lord, they became as lost as the nations around them. And they stopped singing this song. And so, is God going to fulfill his word? Is this promise to Abraham going to fall to the ground? Is this prayer by Aaron that God's face would shine on his people stop? Is God going to break his promises? Well, absolutely not. God never breaks his promises. And what God does is he comes himself to fulfill these promises by sending his son, Jesus Christ, who comes as that descendant of Abraham so that the promise of Abraham might be fulfilled in Jesus. This is the one who, as Hebrews describes, Jesus as being the greater high priest than even Aaron himself. Because Jesus never stops being high priest. He lives forever and ever and ever, able to forgive through the one sacrifice of himself on the cross to forgive anyone who comes and trusts in him. And he's able to forgive them of all their sins. He's the great high priest who now can secure the smile of God on his people. Not because he's the one who can just kind of connect you to God the Father who shines on you, but 2 Corinthians 4 actually says that Jesus is the very face of God and smile of God. It says that Jesus is the glory of, of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's smile incarnate. That he might dwell among us and shine his light out to us. That we might come to know him in a blessed saving relationship with him. This is exactly what Isaiah 49 was talking about. When God says back in Isaiah 49, it's too light of a thing that you, Jesus, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation might reach to the end of the earth. 
It's too small of a thing for God just to send his son to save one people group, the Jews. Why not send his son to save people from every people group, from nations and tribes and languages that are all around the world? Not just some of them or most of them or 90% of them. Every one of them. Because Jesus is the only one who's worthy of this. He's the only one who can do this. In fact, Jesus says in John 8, I am that light. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is this light, the very face and smile of God, who's now able to bring the saving light of the good news of Jesus Christ, his own gospel, to the ends of the earth, that all people might be saved in him and be forgiven by him and be given eternal life from him. We are already in our own day seeing this, aren't we? I mean, like, let's look around. Look at, look at this church family and what God has done in bringing people from all over the world, from different backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities here to be part of the same family of faith. Brothers, sisters in Christ, that we might sing his praises. Isn't that amazing? God is already beginning to fulfill this very song. 2019 actually marks the 200th anniversary that two of my ancestors came to Canada as immigrants to find a better life from England. And they had heard the gospel way back earlier. My cultural background, my goodness, it's all mixed up. There's some... There's some human sacrificing druids in my background. I think there's some Vikings in there. There's some uh, paganistic uh, Celts in there. Like my background's messed up until the gospel of Jesus Christ came. And not all my family is saved, but in God's kindness, there has been a thread of those who have put faith and trust in Jesus down the centuries in which when I heard the gospel for the first time as a kid, from my mom, who had grown up in church but had never been saved until later in life. And so we hear the gospel at different times. We have different backgrounds. But the gospel has gone out from Israel to the ends of the earth. The, the gospel has gone out from Tel Aviv to Toronto. It, it's here. That's why you're here. Maybe you got saved here or there or somewhere else. But God is bringing people from different nations and tribes and peoples and languages all together in his family. And this is what he's doing. This is what's now available to all people. Did you know that there are over 700 million believers on the globe? That's not just general Christian adherence. Those are, and so far as we can tell, real born-again believers. That's about 1 in 10 people on earth. Did you know that Christianity is spreading twice as fast as Islam and three times as fast as Hinduism? There's this expediting of the gospel that seems to be going on, that God is furthering the gospel faster than ever to the ends of the earth. We are living in very exciting times. God is saving many people, and yet, and yet, there are many who have never heard the gospel. You look at Pakistan, there are 200 million people, 99% of them are not just not believers, they have little to no access to even hearing about Jesus or the gospel. There are 1.3 billion people in India, about a third of the people groups in the world live in India, and almost all of them are considered unreached with little to no access to the gospel. There's over half a million villages in India that have no historical record of the gospel ever coming to their village. That just can't be. We gotta go. We got to go. As Paul says in Romans 10, how then will they call on him who they never even heard? 
How are they going to believe in him who they've never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching, without someone going, without someone singing the song of the gospel to them? We must prayerfully consider going. And yet when we look at these two realities, God is moving in a way that he has not done much before in history. It is the gospel is going out so fast. People are being saved in incredible ways, and yet there is still such a need for those to hear the gospel for the first time. And yet we also sometimes forget about this third category, this category of people groups where the gospel has come to them at different times in history, and they have responded, often in very big waves and ways, to the gospel. But over the decades and centuries have since discarded it, dismissed it, set it aside. We could look at all sorts of different European countries that are like this, even in our own country. But the one that sticks out to me most is the nation that this song was given to. That out of the 15, over 15 million Jews on earth, that only 0.5% consider Jesus and see and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, as their Messiah. That the very people that were to sing to the world this song, that by and large and to a great part have stopped singing it. But the roles have been reversed so that now many, Jew, many Gentile Christians are able now to sing and sing the gospel back to the very people that had this song. And so that's why at our church, we take the mission that Jesus gave to his people very seriously. It's a very great mission. That's why we call it the great co-mission. We are doing it with Jesus, co-mission. And that mission is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age, co Mission. We are called to make disciples, followers of Jesus, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Those who have heard, those who haven't heard, those who have heard and since dismissed it, we are to go to all peoples so that they might know the gospel, so they might fear God and worship Him. And that's actually how the psalm ends. Psalm 67, do you see that in verse 7? It says, let all the ends of the earth fear him. We've been saying, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let them praise his name. Let, him, let them fear him. What does that mean? Why would God want us to pray? God, would you bless us so that the nations might fear and worship you? Does fear mean this that they might be terrified and horrified by God. No. No, this word is highlighting reverence. That the world, in knowing God, would come to worship him in a reverent, honoring, full of respect kind of a way. That God is God. He has all power. He is limitless in his power. And that God, instead of judging us and pouring out his wrath on us because of our sin, uses his power to make a way of salvation? We tremble at how amazing that is. How awesome and powerful God is that he would draw close to us as a father and tell us to come up into his arms. That we might be carried by his everlasting arms. Oh, to be carried by omnipotent arms. Can you imagine the love and yet the trembling? And we fear to be disloyal to such a God. Why would I disobey such a God who has used all of his power to make a way to love and save me? I fear disobeying God. Not because I can lose my salvation. But why would I break fellowship with a, such a loving God as this? I dare not, dare not sin against him. But not only does it help us worship God in reverent fear, 
but it allows us not to fear anything else. This is such good news, isn't it? There's so many ways in which if, if you are a human, which I assume most of you are, and you're coming from a background that doesn't know Jesus, then that culture and enslaving. I don't know why, but I, I grew up in a culture where the number 13 was really bad luck. Or if you walked under a ladder, that was really bad luck. I don't know why that was, but that's what it was for me. I, I have a good friend of mine, one of my best friends. He said he was taught in his country that you entered your house backward so as to ward off any evil spirits entering your home. You would get certain markings at birth. You wouldn't be able to pronounce the name of a child when they're born for 40 days or a month in some cultures because that would be bad luck. There's many cultures as you go around the world that believe in something called the evil eye. That if you get this evil eye, it's like getting cursed and there's all these bad things that will happen to you. It's a superstition that enslaves billions, not millions, billions of people. And that's why it's so important for the children of God to realize that superstitions is just a fancy word for lies. They're just lies. They're lies that have been created by non-God-worshipping cultures. My culture made up a bunch of them. Maybe your culture has a bunch of them too. But we have to bring them all to the Bible and say, mm, they're lies because the Bible says something different. The Bible says that now that I'm adopted into the family of God, God's the one who's my shepherd, who guides and protects me. It doesn't matter if some witch doctor throws a curse on me or tells me that if I marry that person that I'm going to be cursed for the rest of my life. No, I'm a child of God. I am now in the family of God. I'm not, I'm not attached to anything out there. I'm not fearful of any superstitions. God is God. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We must see ourselves, if you are trusting in Jesus, as a child of God. And no fear, no need to fear any superstition, any lie that your culture might tell you. There's a new culture. God is making a new people from the peoples in which he both redeems culture and gets rid of some old stuff that has to just go. And superstitions are one of them. And as people from every nation, tribe, and tongue come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, in the maturing process, as we grow in our faith, these are the things that get discarded. You suddenly realize, I, actually, I don't need to fear that. I don't need to fear that my great-grandpa or my grandma was in the Masons and said all these curses on himself and all his family if they were ever to break them. No. You remember you got adopted into a new family. So everything that trickles down from you is from the Father above in whom there is no shifting of shadow. Every good and perfect gift is from him. You're in Christ and all the blessings that are yours in Christ that you might know the presence of God. The forgiveness of God, the peace of God, the comfort of God. This is what it means to fear the Lord and worship him. Free from every lie that this world tells us and that Satan tells us. And free to worship the one true and living God through Jesus Christ, his son. And in so doing, as we begin to sing this song, and we begin to sing his praises of the song of salvation to other people, they begin to hear the gospel and they too are saved. We as a church pray that God would use us at such a time as this to play a part in this mission, in this great commission. I don't know what it looks like individually for you, although I'm happy to sit down and pray and talk about that. But I believe God has us here for such a time as this. And you might be wondering, I mean, this is a really big mission, Chris. And I know God's God, so there's probably a good 80 to 90% percentage of him actually fulfilling this mission. Actually, the scripture says it's 100%. It's 100%. And he actually gives us a picture of what this mission accomplished will look like in Revelation 7. In Revelation 7, John... The Apostle John gets this picture of the mission fulfilled. He says, After this I looked, and behold, 
a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. All tribes, all peoples, and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that's Jesus, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There will be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue in God's kingdom, in the new heavens and earth, around the throne, praising him in their tongue, in their language, dressed in their, I believe, cultural garb, and eating their cultural food. That's all going to be there in the new heavens and earth to the praise of God. He will get all the glory because he's worth the praises in every tongue. He's the only one who is worthy of honor and praise among all peoples on this globe. And you might be wondering, well, I live in Acton or Milton or Mississauga or Brampton. How am I going to play any kind of a part in this? This is way too big for me. Wrong. You can play, and in fact, you are not just called, but enabled by the Holy Spirit to play a very integral, necessary part in the fulfilling of this commission. And these are three ways, and we'll close with this. These are three ways that I want us to begin applying this psalm. One, pray. Pray this song. Pray this song. Pray and thank God that you're actually, if you're trusting in Jesus, a part of the answer to this song. But pray that God would keep you singing this song of salvation so that others would hear the gospel and be saved. Pray this song. Secondly, give to the fulfilling of this song. Give. It takes money to translate the Bible into new languages or to send people like Alicia to go across the Atlantic and share the gospel with those who have not yet heard. So I, I pray that we would be a sending church that gives and enables people to go, that they might sing the song of the gospel, not just globally, but that we would also continue to use this facility in this area and beyond to sing the gospel of Jesus Christ locally and globally, that we might pray and give toward the fulfilling of this song, and lastly, that we might go, that we actually would go, that we would go across the hallway to the neighbor in the next apartment. That we would go across the street to the other townhouse, the other duplex or detached and share the gospel. Invite people into my home, around my table. Share the gospel with my kids, with my unsaved family members, with family members that I know are back home and I had to flee to get here because if they found out I was a believer, it wouldn't go well. God, would you send me? Would you send me locally? God, would you send me globally? Maybe God's stirring in your heart that you might be the one who is sent. We need to pray, God, would you do this? That we would see Psalm 67 fulfilled in our day. I pray that Jesus would come in my lifetime. I want to see this psalm fulfilled in my lifetime and in your lifetime. And so we need to pray. And give ourselves to this song so that the, the nations would praise his name. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, what do we say to you? Who are we that you would save us? That you would cause your face to shine upon us? Who are we that you would know our name? Oh, God, but you do. And you have called us and have given us new hearts and salvation. You've put a song in our heart by the Spirit that we might sing the same song that saved us, the song of Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again, that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. This very song that has saved our own soul. Oh, God, would you help us sing it well? We may not be in tune. We may not be able to harmonize and we might fumble our way through it. Oh God, but let us sing. Let us sing the praises of your name for you are worthy. You are worthy to receive honor and blessing and power and glory in every language. 
Oh God, let it be so and even, even in our own day. We pray 